Go ahead and be seated. We were uh, singing that song that's out of the Psalms, and I thought I knew it. And then I couldn't figure out whether he was a deliverer or a strong for or which order it was all in. And Andrew thought I was singing in tongues. So, uh, you know, it's humbling when you think you know something and you go, I don't have a clue what comes next. But uh, I thought about those and I thought about how we need those and how we need them every single day and hour of our life. Whether we think we need it or not, we need a strong fortress. We need a deliverer. We need the Lord in our life to be all of those things. And we especially need them when we're burdened. Anybody carrying a burden today? You know, we can't always see it, and some of you do a pretty good job of hiding it, and yet the burdens are there. I'd like to pray for you this morning. I'd like to pray for those who are watching our service today that are watching because they're sick or because something has happened and they have to be out of town. Or I mean, you never know what it is that's going on in people's lives and uh, we do know this, God's grace is the answer. And I love that song, The Power of the Cross, because that's really why we're here, and that's really the answer to whatever it is you're going through, the power of the cross and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've got somebody on your heart that you're praying for today, feel free to shoot them a text and just say, I love you, and we're praying for you this morning. And uh, we have reasons not only to pray and ask God to intervene, but also when you think about in all of the times with all of the needs, people that are sick, people that are without a job, people that are having relationship problems, we can focus on that. But there's also a lot of good things that are going on in life as well. God is still saving souls. God is still meeting needs. And uh, Sammy and I have a brand new grandbaby, by the way. And so number eight, can you believe it? And uh, that's a lot of little kids running around. And uh, we're so grateful that uh, uh, Chelsea is doing well. And uh, little Lottie Elizabeth, they're going to call her Lottie Beth. And uh, she's named the Beth comes, uh, the Elizabeth comes from Jenny's middle name. And so uh, that's an honor and everything, too. And I want you to think, you've probably got something in your life to rejoice over as well. So why don't you do that? And don't let prayer time just be a simple, oh, I'm so down and oh, my burdens are so great. Rejoice in the Lord always, the Bible says. You've got a reason to give thanks this morning, and I encourage you to do it. So tell somebody you love them. Shoot them a text. Tell them you're praying for them and encourage them. Uh, every time we do this, I hear from somebody who said, I was sitting at home today or I was in a hospital or I was at my in-laws or something like that. And then I got a text from somebody that was praying for me. Thank you for doing that. Okay? So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we want to come to you today and we bring our needs we bring our cares, we bring our concerns, we bring our burdens, we bring our fears, we bring our pain, we bring our tears to you today. And I thank you that because of the power of the cross, we can come before you 
And instead of being rejected, we're welcomed. And instead of you turning a deaf ear, you incline your ear toward us, the Bible says. And thank you, Lord, we not only have your ear, but as our Father, our Savior, we have your heart. And I thank you, Father, that you care about the things that we go through and the things that burden us. And we're asking you, Lord, to meet every need, whatever it may be. And we're asking you, Lord, to also help us to find joy in the journey, joy in the trials, joy in the suffering that we go through. There's always something to learn and always a way to grow. And we want to do that for your glory and for your honor. And maybe, Lord, the things that we're going through, we wonder, why are we here? Why are we going through this? Maybe there's a fellow traveler we can encourage, a brother or a sister in Christ who needs a companion, someone to walk through the valley with them. Maybe, Father, it's so that we can be an example to somebody that's going to walk through that same valley a few years later. I pray we could dig a well in the desert And make a place for them to be refreshed. And find purpose in our suffering through that. And Lord, sometimes it's just simply because we need to honor you more. Help us to do that. Help us not to turn the wrong direction. But to turn to you and not from you. And we pray, Father, that as we do this, we would remember that you are the joy giver. And that weeping may endure for the night. And it may be a long, long night. But the promise that David gave is that joy comes in the morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with that joy in your time and in your way. And we thank you for loving us and walking with us, never leaving us or forsaking us. Now let us be a blessing to others for your glory as well. In Jesus' name we pray. And if you agree, would you say amen? Take your Bibles. Got a Bible? Turn to Exodus. Exodus, we're in the 22nd chapter now, if you can believe it, as we work our way through this. Got some more weird stuff for you in terms of oxes and sheep and that kind of thing. But uh, is there anything that we can learn from it? Well, I sure hope so. Uh, Look around the room. You see uh, different color hair. Some dark, some not so dark. Some's not there, right? You look around the room and you see some people that are tall. You see some people that are short. You see some people that are thin. You see some people that are not so thin. You see people that are doing well and wear really nice clothes and jewelry. You see some people that uh, maybe not quite so much. You look around and you see some college graduates. You see some who never went to college. You see some who sit behind a desk, some who do manual labor, all kinds of things. You see some people who are smart. You see some people who are not so smart. Please don't look at anybody. You see some people who are spiritual. You see some who are struggling in that area, not so spiritual. In fact, every human falls into one of two categories, don't they? Lost or saved. 
It's the bottom line. And we look at that and say, we're a diverse group of people. Yeah, but there's one thing that all of us, all of us have in common. All of us on planet Earth. You know what that is? It's called depravity. We look around and we see a world that is filled with people that are depraved. And when you think of the term total depravity, that doesn't mean everybody is as bad as they can be. It just means all of us have that possibility. You could be a whole lot worse than you think you could be. And it means that everything we do is stained and tainted by sin. And it means that, <coughs> pardon me, when it comes to getting right with God and pleasing God, all of us are in the same boat and that is total inability to please God or do anything to get to God. That's why he had to come to us. That's why that first song we sang is one of my favorites. Because I'm grateful because he didn't wait for me to come to him. He came to me. He didn't wait for me to cry out to him. His voice called me out of sin and darkness and death. And all of that was through the price that Jesus paid on the cross when he paid for my sins in full. And that's the only answer to anything, any problem that depravity brings up. And boy, depravity brings up a lot of stuff. We saw in Sunday school that Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that when we get involved in sexual immorality that we act like the Gentiles. In other words, we act and think and are motivated like lost people. And here we are as saved people, redeemed people, and people that are supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. And yet, we can get ourselves in a mess where you couldn't tell by looking that we are saved. And God loves us all the same. Christ's death paid for that sin all the same like he did anything else. And our standing before Christ doesn't change. We are his redeemed. We're his chosen. We're his children. And that's all because of grace. We certainly don't deserve that. And when we look around at a depraved world, we see a lot of corruption. How could people act like that? How could people do that, we say? And yet the truth is, we have that same capability of being corrupt, of being evil, of doing things. In fact, we battle sometimes with the thought of doing that. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. And oh, thank God we don't act on it, but it's there and it needs to be dealt with. It's a matter of the heart. How many of you have ever been victims of a thief? Can I see your hands? Yeah, some of you have. I remember Ron Coley when his truck got stolen and things like that. The church was not too long ago. Somebody came up to our uh, church van and decided they needed the catalytic converters on the van more than we did. And Brother Dale got in it and it sounded like a Harley and uh, it's not supposed to. And it cost us several thousand dollars to get it fixed. And it cost us more to fix it than the thief got out of it. Right? And you think about the times when you are concerned about those kind of things. I bet you locked your door before you went to church. Did you? You know what? I'm going to make a guess 
that probably most, if not all of you, your car is locked in the church parking lot. Amen? Yeah. Why? Because people come to church parking lots while we're gathered in here and they go around and try to steal things. We've had batteries stolen and different stuff like that. Uh, who knows? You've got to watch all of that because, again, of depravity. Somebody else comes along and they think that they are more entitled to what you have than you are. And you know, that's not anything new. Uh, people say sometimes, oh, I remember when we never locked our doors or anything like that. Uh, yet there was still stuff going on back then. And even when we go back these thousands of years, thousands of years, back to Mount Sinai, and God has to give commandments. Why does he have to give those ten commandments? Because people don't naturally do them because of depravity. We go the other way. We tend to have other gods, right? We tend not to honor our father and our mother. We tend to steal and commit adultery and murder and all of those kind of things and covet what other people have. And so God has to give us these laws and he's not just wasting his breath saying, you know, there are a few people out there who just might possibly slim chance break these laws. God understands our heart, that from our heart that we break these commandments all the time. And so as he is giving these commandments, he gives some case studies in each one of these. And these, this is not a comprehensive thing, but he is giving us a commentary on those Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 22. And it says in verse 1, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it... Now see, that tells us there was intent. This is not just one of your sheep followed me home or your ox happened to end up in my pasture. This is a guy who knows what he's doing, right? And slaughters it or sells it. He shall restore five oxen for an ox... And four sheep for a sheep. Okay? In other words, you steal one ox, you're required by the law to pay back five. Steal one sheep, you're required to pay back four is what that means. Verse 2. If the thief is found breaking in, in other words, caught, and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. You know... Uh, it just kind of irks me sometimes that somebody could break into my house, be on my property in the middle of the night, and if I do something that causes them physical injury or even death, I could be liable for that? Well, God's Word says something different about that. But it goes on to um, tell us this. Uh, verse 3, If the sun has risen on him then there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. In other words, if you break in at night, you're taking your life in your own hands. But if it's during the sunlight when you can see it and you know what the guy's doing, don't kill him. That's not a capital offense, in other words. And uh, so it goes on to say, he should make the thief full restitution if he has nothing 
then he, he shall be sold for his theft. Remember that thing on slavery that uh, for seven years an Israeli could be a slave in order to pay back a debt. Well, the thief would do that. Verse 4. If the theft is, uh, if the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, meaning it's an animal or something like that, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. Verse 5. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed, and lets loose his animal, and it feeds in another man's field, then he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and it catches in thorns, so that uh, stacked grain or standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire, even if it was accidental, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. Now verse 7, If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, then he shall pay double. Verse 8, if the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. I mean, kind of like insurance fraud or something like that. Uh, somebody stole it, and actually this guy kept it. Uh, it's speaking of something like that. Verse 9, for any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Verse 10 says, If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away with no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it will accept that, and he will not make it good. But if, in fact... It is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. In other words, he's free. And if a man borrows anything, I don't know if you've ever done that, or had anybody borrow anything from you, any man borrow anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, or maybe lost, the owner of it, being with it, he shall surely make it good. But if the owner was with it, he shall not make it good. And if it was hired, then it uh, came for its hire. So when you look at these verses and you read about them, 
there's a couple of things that uh, we want to point out to make real clear. That no matter, even if you're gathering God's people, these are the people of God brought out of Egypt, even when you gather God's people together, there's still the potential for trouble. And that's why I would recommend, even in a church, when you come for the church, don't leave your purse just lying around. You never know who's going to be here. You never know who is going to uh, do something that's wrong. And a lot of times we look at things and we say, I can't believe that happened at a church. Those were church people. Uh, we've had uh, situations in the past where somebody said, you know, I was at the church for a wedding or a funeral and this happened. I can't believe that happened at a church. Well, when you're at events like that, that's different than a worship service. You never know who's going to be there for a wedding or a funeral. Take care of stuff. Because there's always the tendency that somebody might have. And they may not be a church member. They may not even be a Christian. And uh, they just find themselves with a great opportunity uh, to do something or to steal. Because as we said in the beginning, one thing we all have in common, that is depravity. A fallen nature. We're made in the image of God, but because of sin we have fallen from that. That image is marred, and we are by nature sinners. And by nature, there are all kinds of temptations that can come up because we have an enemy that walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he is the tempter, and he has his demons that are attacking, intimidating, harassing us. And they put thoughts in different people's minds. And it may not be the same as what's in your mind. So you say, how could anybody do this? But the truth of the matter is, they do. And we have to be ready, and we have to think about that. And even Israel... Going into the land that God has promised them, they're going to have problems with people stealing things. They're going to have people with uh, trouble with people setting fires and burning up somebody else's pasture. They're going to have trouble with people borrowing things and not returning it. They're going to have trouble with people saying, oh, I don't have that anymore. Somebody stole it when they actually have it. And all of these things that we read. The tr same trouble that we have in our society today. That's why you lock your cars even while you're in church. That's why your doors are locked at home and your windows are shut. That's why you have to be careful about all of these kind of things because there are people who would love to take them off of your hands. So what do we as New Testament believers learn from reading this? How do we get edified? How do we get fed? How do we get strengthened? How do we get instructed and even more importantly, how are we to see Jesus in this situation? Well, the first thing that I want to point out is that everything is under the scrutiny of God. When God talks about these situations here to the people of Israel and gives them these cases, he's not just saying, you know, what, what might happen. He's telling them what is going to happen because he's an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Now, what we have forgotten is that everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel, everything that motivates you, everything that you have entering your mind is known by God. And God also sees what you do with it, how you act upon those impulses. Do you kill them? Do you put them to death? 
Do you mortify them, as the Apostle Paul said, or do you think about them? Do you cherish them? Do you let them kind of run wild and run free in your heart? Oh, you would never do it, except in your heart you think about it, and you think about it. And sometimes it makes you happy. Sometimes it's driven by anger. Sometimes by selfishness. Any number of things. And as you think about those things, you cherish them. And if we could peel back your heart and we could look at what you think about, what motivates you, if we could look at what you indulge in, if we could look at at the things that are there that you would never, ever, ever dream of letting out. What would, we, what would we think of you? Because it's easy to come together like we do today and everybody looks nice and everybody's acting respectable. But if we could see inside of your heart and you say, oh, I would just die if anybody knew the real me. And so we play a game and we cover up. And uh, we wear a mask, but it's not this kind of mask that we wear. It's a mask that makes us look like something that we are not. Now here's the thing we have to understand. God knows the real you. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what you've done. He knows what you want to do but are afraid to. He knows what you would do if there were no consequences. Can you imagine what people would do in our society today if there were no consequences. It would surprise you, shock you, and it might even be that you would be the one that are shocked the most about what you do if there really were no consequences. And yet there's a God in heaven who knows every single thing about you. He knows your heart. He knows that flash of anger. He knows the lust. He knows the greed. He knows the insults. He knows all of the wickedness that resides inside of you. And yet, He loves you with an everlasting love. And so when God speaks of this in these cases, this is a God who knows even before it happens. Israel, you're going to deal with this. Not only are you, like we saw last week, going to have trouble with maybe animals that get out of control and hurt people or hurt others, but you are going to have to deal with brothers and sisters that are from the same ancestor, Abraham, that may be even in your own tribe tribe of Judah or the tribe of Dan or any of those and and you're even more closely related people who should be looking out for your welfare people who should want the best for the culture and for the society and for the group and for the family and for the tribe and yet they don't they see what you've got and they decide you don't need it and they do and so they take it we are under the scrutiny of God, even as we worship. Did you know God knows your heart today? He knows whether you're paying attention or not. He knows whether you meant what you were singing earlier. 
He knows whether you're going to live as a Christian once you get out of the building. He already knows. Already knows. And he disciplines his children. And the Bible says if you're without discipline, that's because you're illegitimate. You're not really a child of God. So that's the first thing that we learn out of this. Now the second thing we learn out of this is this. People of God, listen to me. Holiness is not just Sunday morning. Holiness is not just when you have your quiet time. Holiness is not just on Easter or Christmas or anything like that. Holiness is supposed to permeate every part of your life. Holiness is supposed to be the way you conduct your business, the way you do your taxes. Holiness is supposed to be the way you treat your neighbor, the way you treat a cashier uh, or a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant. Holiness is the way church people are supposed to act when they gather and when they are outside. Holiness is supposed to define you as a parent. Holiness is supposed to define you as a husband or a wife. No excuses and there's nothing to let you up on that. Every part of our life, Paul said, Whether you eat, well, that's pretty basic. Everybody eats. Or whether you drink, everybody drinks. In fact, I've got this under doctor's orders. My doctor said, I'm getting dehydrated. So, see, I'm not doing this just to be rude. (laughs) Doctor's orders, right? Whether you eat or whether you drink, or whatever you do, uh uh-oh, that's everything, do all to the... Glory of God. Very good. Do all. Because holiness is not just something you put on. It's not just something that you wear. It's not just something that you do as an act. It's not just something that you do for other people to see. It's not just something that you do because you would die if anybody saw you doing or acting in the way that maybe you were thinking Personal holiness involves all acts of life. And so you don't steal somebody else's ox because why? You're holy unto the Lord. You're living to the glory of God. God didn't give that to you. It doesn't belong to you. He doesn't intend for you to have that. That's somebody else's doesn't matter how much they have. Well, they have enough. They would never even miss it. That is not the issue. The issue is you and your holiness. Will you walk with God? Will you be an ambassador for Christ? Will you be what you are supposed to be regardless of what anyone else does? That's why you don't follow the crowd. That's why you don't do it just because everyone else is doing it. And that's why you don't do it just simply because they wouldn't notice This is between you and God, the God who sees everything, and personal holiness is to invade every part of your life. See, it's not enough just that you don't cuss at church. Shouldn't be doing that anywhere. It's not enough that you don't commit adultery here at church in this building. You shouldn't be doing it anywhere. Personal holiness is for every part of life. 
Personal holiness when you borrow something. Personal holiness when a fire accidentally burns another person's pasture. And you, make, you should make restitution. This is what he is talking about here. Thirdly, I want you to notice something that is a little bit foreign to us. And that is the idea of restitution and deterrent. Um, Ligon Duncan says, now notice what the law says has to happen in this case. The law says that theft should result in the enrichment of the victim and the impoverishment of the thief. Did you hear that? The law is designed to exactly counteract the intention of the thief's crime. What a tremendous deterrent to the crime itself. The law is designed to ameliorate, that means make better, the harm that has been done to the victim and bring upon the perpetrator the same harm that he was ready and willing to bring upon the victim. You know, so many times we find that uh, in our society, somebody steals or embezzles or something like that, and then they get put in prison. You know what happens when they get put in prison? They may have stolen $100,000 from my company, and now I have to pay through my taxes $100,000 plus a year to feed and to house them in a prison. What good did that do? I'm getting stolen from double, in my opinion. But in the Bible, instead of locking somebody up in prison, they would take a thief like that. These are nonviolent people, by the way. The violent people would have suffered capital punishment. But um, in the Bible way, that this thief, he would go to work, and you know what he would do? Well, if he stole one sheep from me, he'd have to be paying back four. If he stole one ox from me, he would pay back five. Why did he have to pay back five oxen? Well, because in those days, an ox, it took a long time to train and to raise. And if you didn't have your ox, it probably meant your family was going to starve. So a thief who would take an ox, that's a big deal in these days and in these times. And the Bible would say that uh, to the thief, hey, if you break in at night, you're taking your life in your own hands because if somebody catches you at night, they didn't have lights like we do, did, did they? And they come up and they grab you and club you or whatever and you die, that's on you, bud, because you shouldn't have been breaking into their house at night. Now, the Lord does say, now, if it's in daylight and you can tell this is not a murderer or anything like that it's just somebody who's stealing then you don't kill them it's not a capital crime but this is the way it's supposed to work and Ligon Duncan points out that it's supposed to be that whenever the thief is caught the thief is relieved of his property so that you can be enriched and the opposite takes place what a deterrent to crime and a change from crime and uh, when you think about that, this is uh, what is 
interesting when Nathan comes before King David and he tells him a story that illustrates David's sin. Remember? There's a rich man with a lot of sheep, a poor man with one little lamb. The rich man has company over and wants to do a barbecue, so he steals the poor man's lamb. Oh, David is so self-righteously just enraged. How could anybody do that? And doesn't even see the fact that that's exactly what he did when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had Bathsheba's husband murdered to cover up the crime. And David says, that man shall die. Well, that's interesting. The law of God makes it really clear that thievery is not a capital offense. It's to be repaid fourfold. But David, in his attempt to cover up his hypocrisy, to cover up his sin. He wants to be this self-righteous, I'll speak, that's not going to happen in my kingdom. Can you imagine when Nathan said to him, Thou art the man. And it stabbed David's heart. And out of that we get Psalm 51, as David repents and God forgives. See? So we look at all of this and we see God put these things in place. Not only for the time in which they lived, but to carry on. Because there was going to be a king in Israel who was going to violate even what this law said. And it was going to be used to strike his heart and to bring him to repentance. And so we look at that and see that God is giving these laws so that the victim will be repaid more than what was taken and that the thief is going to be impoverished and that's going to be a deterrent to anyone trying to do that. And so all of these things have very, very practical, very practical implications. But there's one last thing. What is the solution to all of this? You know, our government hadn't come up with a solution. Society hadn't come up with a solution. Families haven't come up with a solution. What does this mean? Luke 23. Luke 23. When Jesus died on the cross, we sang about the power of the cross. He was crucified between two robbers, two thieves. Isn't that interesting? And there he is dying like they were dying. If you walked by and you didn't pay any attention, you would just assume that three criminals are all the same. And maybe you look above one and it said he's being crucified because he violated not Jewish law, because thievery wasn't a capital offense, but Roman law. And it said that he did that. You would assume maybe all three were like that. And you missed that one in the middle where it said he's the king of the Jews. And Jesus is dying a criminal's death with criminals, particularly thieves, as we're talking about today. And yet something amazing happens in verse 39. When one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, then save yourself and us. But the other... Answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? 
And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, not on your life. There's no room for a sinner like you. Not on your life. What makes you think I would want a thief in my kingdom? Is that what it says? No. Jesus said to him, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. God forgives sinners, all sinners that come to him in repentance and faith. Spurgeon said, you can stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. And you and I are the thieves that rob God of his glory. We're the thieves that mistreat others made in the image of God. We envy and we covet and we resent other people. And sometimes... We even take the things that don't belong to us. How much do you have to steal to be a thief? Doesn't come with a value, does it? And here we stand before God, guilty in all of that. And the only thing that makes us righteous is Jesus Christ through his death and his burial and his resurrection. And he's the one that took the blame and he bore the wrath and you stand forgiven because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Lawbreakers, whatever it might be, all of us have broken God's law. We've sinned and transgressed against God. We did it willingly. The Bible says if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. And yet Jesus Paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But he washed it white as snow. Oh, won't you receive him today as your Savior and Lord? Won't you trust in him for the payment for your sin? Won't you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Won't you cry out to him? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you are already a believer, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an unconditional promise given to you and me because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we stand forgiven at the cross. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, would you wash us clean of our sins? Would you remind us of how vile we really are? How we look at other people and say, I can't believe they could do something like that. But God has every right to look at us and say to us in our self-righteousness, I can't believe you would ever do anything like that. And yet we do because of our depravity. But, oh, Lord, what a gracious God we have. What a great Savior we have. 
a God who loves sinners, a God who is a friend of sinners, a God who will forgive sinners and change them into saints, into his family. Thank you, Lord, for your death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for the way you change us. May we live out of the new nature that you've given us and not live out of the old. And may we live so that you are honored and not grieved, so that you are glorified, and so that other people see Jesus in us. And anyone who is watching by live stream or in this auditorium that is not saved, would you convict them of their sin, draw them to you, the God who is willing to forgive and restore. And this we pray, praising you and thanking you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much.